That was good. I appreciate our worship team very much. I want to share with you something before I speak. So this is free for the day. Um, yesterday, Pam and I were walking and uh, walking in our neighborhood. We we love our neighbors. We really do. And, and uh, um, there was a couple of ladies in the next door, um, and we're watching kids. We got a lot of kids, so they're out riding bikes and everywhere. And and uh, one of the one of the kids, eleven year old, had on a Michael Jordan shirt, Jordan shorts, uh, Jordan sneakers. And uh, one of the moms said uh, said I was talking to him earlier and said you know you know who that is, and they didn't know. Michael Jordan, anything about Michael Jordan. They just thought it was a line of clothing. They didn't know anything about him. And, uh, you know, he, most of you in this room, um, you know, even if you don't like basketball, know of Michael Jordan. And yet a generation's coming along that doesn't even know who who he is. And so I, I was having my Bible reading time this morning. I was in the book of Judges. And I read something in the book of Judges. I'm just going to share it with you right quick. And, and it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, a generation has passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And my heart was grieved because I'm thinking, okay, uh, maybe an 11-year-old doesn't know who Michael Jordan is. But can we be raising a generation right now that has no clue who Jesus is? I mean, we have an incredible responsibility. I mean, not not to teach them, uh, not to wear, you know, just because he had a Jordan t-shirt on and he didn't know who Michael Jordan is. How many times do we Christianize things, but they don't know Jesus? And so we, I'm telling you, this was this made my heart heavy because there's a generation maybe coming along. Now, can God shift gears on that? Sure. I mean, he can bring a great awakening and, and, and these kind of things happen. But I think right now we have an incredible responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ to make sure the next generation, and, 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 and sometimes I, gotta, I know i got to get to the message. Uh study something all week and then the Lord in two minutes awakens my spirit about something. And uh, here's, here's the deal. Uh, I know most of you are here and you, you want to hear from the Lord and, and either that or you're doing your church thing, Easter build up, that kind of stuff. But I want to challenge your heart. And I think back about my father-in-law uh, who passed away, you know, last month. Great man on my Mount Rushmore of people. I guarantee you, if anything, you slice him, he would share the gospel with children. He, there was time that he and my mother-in-law, Pam's folks, uh, they would, they could, the two of them can handle 30 kids, just loving on them in the name of Jesus. And so, I don't know where I'm going other than to challenge your heart that if you're looking for a place to serve, serve the next generation. Uh, so often we're carrying uh, water to the ocean, and we need to understand we have an incredible task 
of telling the next generation. If not, are we? is that going to be us, that another generation came who did not know the Lord? So I challenge you with that and uh, just see what the Lord does with that. Now let me get to the part I studied all week long. That's the way God does, man. He He, he gives you things and you got to go with it. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32 in just a moment. If you're new or you're watching online, you just happen to pop in. We're part of a series right now we're calling The Road to the Resurrection. Road to the Resurrection. Last week we talked about broken in Bethany, and today we're talking about agony in the garden. And so uh, this is where we're going today, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Let me give you uh, some thoughts before I read the scripture today. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, Saturday mornings were you wake up, watch cartoons, because that was the only place you got cartoons on network TV in the morning, Saturday morning. And then after lunch, uh, every Saturday, there came on a show, and this was part of the uh, opening of it. I want you to see it right quick. Flavian, the youngster... His inexperience, he fell on his first jump. A lot of speed in that track now. Look at him, look at him go! Oh, oh. oh okay. baby, what a terrible fall. I'll say this part, and you finish it. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. We, uh, Wide World of Sports would show that every every Saturday in kicking off whatever they do, they're... Uh, whatever they sports worldwide that they would do. That guy's name is Vinko Bogataj, and he was from Yugoslavia. That just happened to be a ski jump contest that was happening that particular weekend. And what's really bizarre is uh, I didn't realize this until I uh, decided to use this this particular illustration, but. That happened on March 21st, 1970. And today's March 21st. Uh, just coincidence. But, uh, but Vinko Bogotaj was known forever as the man of the agony of defeat. And, uh, let me, let me give you another picture to show you where we're going to get today. I'm currently reading a biography about Howard Cosell. Now, some some of you may not have a clue who Howard Cosell is or he was. He was an attorney that uh, got into sports casting, Monday Night Football. He really made it iconic, and, and uh, this was Howard Cosell. But he really cut his teeth on doing boxing matches, and he and Muhammad Ali, uh, the heavyweight boxer, were very close friends. And he uh, called some of the the most historical um, heavyweight matches that ever happened. Uh, Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali. Some of you kids don't care. But uh, some of you, I just brought up something in your mind. The next year was the Thrilla in Manila. There we go. Thrilla in Manila, which was uh, uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier. They, they were fought in 1975. And Howard Cosell was part of the Rumble in the Jungle and the uh, Thriller in Manila. And they would come up with these iconic uh, names for uh, the boxing matches. And uh, today, 
and, and here's the deal. These boxing matches were seen by the whole world. I mean, everybody would tune in to watch these incredible boxing matches. Well, today we're going to talk about the agony in the garden. We're going to talk about basically three rounds that Jesus went in the garden that all of history would hinge on. Not just the world watching, but history would hinge on this, what took place in the garden. And let me ask you this question before I read the scriptures. What is the greatest, rhetorical question, what is the greatest agony, anguish you've ever gone through? I mean, just think about it just a moment. Just in your life of however long it's been, what is the greatest anguish you have gone through? Uh, maybe the loss of a loved one or a child. Uh, how about war? Some of you have, some of you in our church were in Vietnam, some were in Afghanistan, Iraq. Maybe it was war. How about cancer? Many have battled cancer and continue to battle cancer. How about abandonment? Uh, either a spouse or a parent and abandoned. What about poverty? You either grew up in poverty or you are currently are struggling with poverty. I want you to know if you combine all of these agonies, you are beginning just on the fringe of sensing somewhat what Jesus totally took in the garden. So let me read the scriptures and uh, let's see what the Lord has for us today. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Keep your Bibles uh, open there, because I want to walk back through this a little bit. I want to look at this time of anguish, because the the premise of this uh, series, we looked at Bethany, we're going to the Garden of Gethsemane, next week we'll deal with the cross and then the resurrection. But I want you to keep your Bibles, because I think the Lord wants to teach us something today. There are three times when we read the Gospels that Satan came against Jesus. Now, Jesus cast out many demons from demonized people. That was true. But there are three specific times that Satan came against Jesus. One was in Matthew chapter 4 after Jesus was baptized. It said the Spirit thrust him to go out into the wilderness, and he went out there to fast and pray for 40 days. While he was there, Satan came and tempted him. You may remember, tempted him to take the stones and turn them into bread. He tempted him to um, jump off the temple. He tempted him to bow down to Satan. And Jesus did not. He answered Scripture every time. And it says that Satan left him for a more opportune time. So that was one. Number two was also in Matthew, I think, 16, where... where um, Peter, Jesus has just told the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and this is what's going to take place. And Peter, who always spoke before he thought, became indignant towards Jesus and said, you can't talk that way, you, you don't be saying what you're saying. And Jesus said to Peter, you may remember, get behind me, Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. And then... Um, and then we see a third time, which is we're going to deal with today, in the garden. So, But I, I want you to grab this, okay? Because we think, why does Satan exist? Why, why does he do what he does? Uh, let me tell you something. Satan did not come to make Jesus feel uncomfortable. Satan did not come to uh, just tempt him to do something strange. What Satan's total objective was is to keep Jesus from the cross. You think back about the temptation. Do it another way. Jump off the building. They'll follow you if you do magic tricks or you give them bread. They'll follow you for that. But Jesus knew he needed to go to the cross. Look at Peter. Peter was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan, because Satan does not want Jesus to go to the cross. And today it's going to be the same thing. Why? It's because the cross is a big deal. All of history is going to hinge on that cross. If Jesus did not go to that cross, you and I are doomed. And Jesus knew he needed to go there. He had to go to the cross. And so Satan is going to do everything he can to keep Jesus from going to the cross. But he's not going to succeed. Now, let's look at this. He goes, first of all, it says that they go to a garden called Gethsemane. Obviously, Jesus had uh, privileges to go to this garden. Uh, let me kind of give you a picture because I want you to join me in the garden. If you've got Jerusalem over here, you've got the what's called the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives had a garden there called the Garden of Gethsemane. Who, who it belonged to, we don't know. Jesus had privileges to go to this garden. In this garden were olive trees, 
Olive trees live a long time, man. I mean, we're talking, they live a long time. And if you were to go to Israel, there's currently a church uh, up on the Mount of Olives that's there. But it's really neat. Off to the side, there is a private garden that two years ago when we went, we were able to give a, a little money uh, to the keepers, and they let us go in there. And this particular garden still has the olive trees. Uh, it's very rustic. And you can go in there and just reflect and pray and just kind of wander around. And you can just get a picture of what Jesus would have experienced. So he goes to this garden. And the term Gethsemane means olive press. Olive press. That means that you take the olives, they harvest the olives, they take them, you have the stones to uh, flatten them out, to press them. And what happens is, is the out of the pits, the... The seed part, you get the oil, and olive oil was everything. They used it for medicinal purposes. They used it for uh, just lotions. They used it in cooking. They used it for everything. And, and olive oil was for everything. And, and even Popeye got his girlfriend olive oil out of, out of that. But uh, the, this, this pressing, and the olive had to go through this pressing, this crushing, to get the oil. And isn't it just like the Lord to use a place called the olive press to take his son and to put him in this vice of pressure that was emotional, physical, mental, and he's going through this squeezing and out of the squeezing would become life for us. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God allowed him to be crushed. And out of this, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So you can see the symbolic picture in this olive press garden where Jesus himself is going to be pressed. Now notice he took Peter, James, and John a little bit farther. This, this is what I call the first team. There were 12 apostles, 12 disciples, and the, these three, Peter, James, and John, had the privilege of being with Jesus in his, some of his most intimate times. Uh, uh, on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, they are up there. There's other times they were brought close. And this particular time, Jesus says, I want you to go deeper into the garden with me as I pray, and I want you to be here. And, I, and I've thought about that. Why did he want Peter, James, and John there? I think there are two reasons. I think one is to give an eyewitness account of what was taking place. And Mark was kind of a protege of Peter, so most people believe that Peter is responsible for the gospel of Mark. And so we get this eyewitness account. But number two is this. If you're suffering... Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, however you're suffering, you don't want to be alone. You want somebody there with you. And that's what Jesus said. He said, he said come and sit with me. Come and be with me. You don't have to say anything. Yeah, I want you to pray, but I just want you here. And that's what he wanted uh, of Peter, James, and John at this time. And notice in your scriptures that in verse 33, it, it gives verbal 
words to describe what Jesus is going through. Notice in verse 33, it says, He was greatly distressed and troubled. And in verse 34, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The, the words distressed and troubled obviously mean anguish, but it also means this. It means these are unfamiliar, or this is not at home. You know, Wizard of Oz, uh, we, this is not Kansas anymore, right? Dorothy says, this is not Kansas anymore. And, uh, because it was unfamiliar, it was a place she did not know. And what I, what I think this word distressed and troubled, this was even unfamiliar to Jesus. He had never been under this kind of anguish. I think in his humanity, this was taking him beyond what he could ever imagine. And so he was distressed and troubled. And then he said, I'm deeply sorrowful. Now that is the, the term referring to grief. I'm grieving. And, and we know in Isaiah 53, verse, uh, three, it said, it talks about that, uh, Jesus was a man of sorrow acquainted with great grief. And there was a great grief that he felt. Now, was he grieving over his own status? I don't think so. I think he was sorrowful for the sin of mankind and what it had done to all of mankind. And he was grieving for us. I want you to hear something because I believe this is true, and but yet it's something you need to be taught. Oftentimes we say, oh, I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. I want to walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And, and usually what people mean when they say that is, I want to feel euphoric or I want to feel excited. And we, we, we want these things in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When the Spirit of Jesus Christ fills you, you're going to feel what Jesus felt. And there's going to come times where you're grieving. You're grieving over people. You're grieving over sin. You're grieving over this world. And you're thinking, where is this coming from? Am I going nuts? And really, it's the Spirit of Christ indwelling you that you feel that. And that he was feeling this deep sorrow that he felt. But also, it was not just emotional. There was a physical presence. Notice what it says. It says that he... uh fell it, it, it fell before the lord basically and uh what this means it's a continuation he continued to fall so and he continued to pray so what was happening is he would fall before the lord in this agony and oh lord take this cup from me and then he would get up again and then he would be overwhelmed again and bang he's he's just coming to before the lord in the Gospel of Luke, from Luke's camera angle, he says that Jesus sweat drops of blood as he was in such agony. So uh, what, what the medical term is, it's a term called hematidrosis, where actually blood vessels break and they get in a sweat glands, and so you sweat drops of blood. That's literally what, what he did. So in a physical, he falls, he's crying out to God, the intensity of the moment, the blood drops come, he gets back up, he's overcome again by this, and, and, and this is what he is going through. But, and you can, you can write this down, because I think this is important 
to grab is that that uh, that if we are willing to fall before the Father, we can stand. And I'll make that point a little bit more in just a moment. But you see the incredible intensity that Jesus is under right there. Uh, and then he prays this, that this hour may pass. Now, he's not talking about the hour of prayer that he's in. He's talking about the cross. He knows that he has to go to the cross. He has witnessed what the cross does, how it humiliates, how it brings anguish and physical trauma and mental trauma. And he knows all of those things. And he said, oh, Father, if this hour can pass, if this hour can pass, uh, but... We know it's not. And he also realizes that he is innocent. And he is going to carry the sin of mankind. He's never felt guilt and shame. And all of that's going to be poured on him. Paul wrote this. He says, God made him who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus took all the sin of mankind on that cross. And he knows it's about to happen. I I want you to think about this. I want you to think about not just the most anguishing time you've ever gone through, but I want you to think about a time where you knew something was about to happen that was unpleasant. And you knew it was going to come. And you had to, that anticipatory time of that coming. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe a loved one, your parent has gone to their final stages of life, and you're there, and you have the anguish of knowing what they're about to go through. How about uh, uh, you work for a particular company, and you know it's just a matter of time because uh, economics that they're going to lay you off, and you, you feel that as it approaches. How about kids leaving home? Uh, some of you are saying, Mark, that's not anguish, uh, but but you you'll get there, and... Uh, you you come to that point of thinking, gosh, you know, it's going to be empty nest. It's it's going to be a, 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 a sad day. Or how about something that's trivial in the big scheme of things, but not to to you that are going through it, but a pet that has become part of your family that you have to put down. Or you're about to move, and you're going to move away from friends and family, and you're going to be gone for uh, uh, a time. You know, we anticipate that. I want you to know that these pale in comparison to what Jesus was looking for when he was going to come to the cross. And then he begins to pray. And notice in verse 36, the first two words of his prayer are this, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba refers to a Swedish singing group in the... 70s and 80s. Abba is a Aramaic and a Hebrew term. It's an intimate term, which literally means daddy. So what Jesus is praying here is daddy, father, daddy, uh, that intimate phrase. Um, when we were in Israel one time, uh, we were at Caesarea. In Caesarea, you got the ruins, and then you got the Mediterranean. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And um, you can walk along the, the beach there on the Mediterranean. And I hear this little boy 
and he was behind a dune, uh, and he's saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. And then this uh, uh, Israeli dad goes and, and gets his son. But he's yelling, Abba, Abba, Abba. And all of a sudden, it just became a reality. You know, you read the words, and then it be- becomes reality. And that Abba is daddy. And, and Jesus is under this anguish, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and he's crying out, Daddy, 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 don't you see I'm hurting, Daddy? And, and, and let me tell you, any dad that's in this room, when your child is hurting and they're crying out, Daddy, you want to respond, don't you? And, and that's what he's doing, Daddy. And then he says, uh, uh, and, and let me just say this. If, if you can call God Father, if you can call him Father, then all will be well. If you can call him Father, all will be well. Listen, even whatever you're facing, if you can come to that point that truly he is your heavenly Father, I, I mean he is your heavenly Father, then uh, all can be well. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Remove this cross. I make this request. I I really want you to take it away. And then he says this, yet not what I I will, but what you will. There's something I want to teach you here right quick that Jesus' prayer teaches us that I think we can learn from. He makes a request. And then he rests. You know, we often in our prayers are, God, give me this. God, give me this. God, make me feel better. God, make me more comfortable. God, make a smooth path. God, protect my family. God, give me enough finances. God, God, God. And, and we re- make requests, but then we don't ever rest in the one that we've made the request. And Jesus', is, Jesus is life is on the line. Lord, I know you're, uh, Father, I know you can take this from me, but yet I'm going to rest in you. Your will be done. That's not always easy, but that's what he's asking uh, right here. And then he says this. He goes back, he finds the guys asleep, and notice what he says. He says, Simon, the other two got off easy. Simon, are you asleep? Now, his name was Peter, right? And he used to be Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter, Rock, Rock. He's the Rock, and uh, but yet he used to be Simon, the Pebble. And Jesus gave him the new name, Rock. He comes and finds him asleep, and what does he do? He calls him Simon. That old, that old Simon, that old one. I tell you what. The biggest battle that I have in life is with the old Mark. It's not, you know, I can blame the devil made me do it all day long, but it's the old Mark that I battle with. And I know I'm not alone in that. I mean, the attitude, uh, you know, I can be good sometimes. I can be good for nothing at other times. I mean, that old nature wants to creep up, and I, I love... I love that the book of Galatians is in there, that Paul knew that, and, and even Romans chapter 7 that Paul talks there. But, but we, if we can understand that the flesh is real 
and the and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he comes back and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Oh, Simon, that had to eat him. It had to eat him up. And then he says this, verse 42. He says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Rise up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to make two thoughts here. These are worth writing down. The first one is this. While disciples sleep, the enemy plots. While disciples sleep, enemies, the enemy plots. Notice that's what happened here is that Peter, James, and John are asleep. And while they're sleeping, what happened is the religious leaders in Judas are organizing this plot to come and arrest Jesus. While the disciples sleep, the enemy plots. You know, the Bible warns us of, to be alert, to be sober, keep the lamp burning, keep plenty of oil. But I want you to know that when we become, as followers of Jesus, when we become apathetic and lethargic and asleep, the enemy will triumph. And I want you to know, I, I can say this with full assurance, if you're apathetic and lethargic about your walk with Christ, it's a matter of time before the enemy will take you down. Well, Mark, don't you think Jesus will protect me? I'm saying if you do not become alert, if you do not, uh, if you not become, uh, your, keep your lamp burning, so to speak, in your light, in your flame for God, I'm telling you, it's a matter of time before you will go down. I will go down. Most people who are followers of Jesus, even pastors, and we, we read about pastors who, who fall morally, it was because they let their flame become a flicker and the enemy came. It will happen. I'm just giving you a warning. You, but you remember at Pearl Harbor when uh, after the Japanese had come and did all the destruction, it is said that the Japanese Admiral Yamamoto made this quote. He said, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. I would love to pray that the enemy would see that he, maybe we are the sleeping giant as the church and God will wake us up and we will see things happening. Think about it in our nation. You know, we can say, well, the devil and the flesh and look what's happening in our nation. I'll be honest. I, I think it's because the church has gone to sleep and we have to lift up the light of the gospel. Here's the second thought that's worth writing down. We can stand against anything when we have been on our knees. We can stand against anything when we've been on our knees. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. A man stands tallest on his knees, and God was fulfilling his plan as they prayed. Now, what happens, the rest of the story, so to speak, is that Judas shows up. He shows up with the religious leaders. He also shows up with a cohort of Roman soldiers. Now, <clears throat> scholars think that there was 200 plus come to arrest Jesus that night. 
And you were thinking, man, why bring that many people? Well, Judas had seen the power in Jesus. And so they come, and it's in the Gospel of John, I believe, where they said, are you the one? And he said, I am. And everybody falls down. And so uh, they come to arrest Jesus. And they they show up. And um, then what happens is, uh, obviously, we know it's Peter. Peter brings out his sword, cuts off a high priest's servant's ear. His name's Malchus. And he cuts his ear off. Jesus heals it. We don't see that in Gospel of Mark, but uh, you can see it in John. And uh, <clears throat> then what happens is, is that verse, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I'm starting to lose it. Um, preaching three times can take your voice away. Uh, verse 49, notice what it says. Jesus says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. And then look at this. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Judas thought he was in control, but he was not. The religious leaders thought they were in control, but they were not. The Romans thought they were in control, but they were not. Satan thought he was in control, but he was not. God was in control. This was just the next domino which had to fall for Satan to be crushed, which had been prophesied since the beginning. Listen, I want you to be encouraged today. Whatever you're going through, God is in control. But Mark, it feels uncomfortable. Hey, go to the garden. God is in control. And then notice in verse 50, it says, all left him and fled. Everybody left. So we're talking about a complete crushing in the olive press. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He's crushed. Everybody leaves him be. Let me wrap this up. <clears throat> I want you to understand something. I want you to go back to the garden. Why? Because it happened years ago? No, it's because the Lord wants you to know He went through that anguish just for you. And and you may be struggling with something today, and you just need the encouragement of coming and bowing before the Father. And to know that Jesus called Him Daddy, that you can have that intimate walk with Jesus Christ. And maybe that's where you're at today. You just need that. But let me give you one other thought. I mentioned earlier about Vinko Bogatash, the guy that cratered. And he, when he fell, he broke an ankle and he had a slight concussion. That was it. Well, Vinko went back to Yugoslavia. He's married. He has a couple of daughters. And uh, he doesn't know what's happening in America. And in America turns him into an iconic hero. I mean, every Saturday, people were watching him. I don't know if he got royalties for that. Probably not. And he, every Saturday, people would watch Vinko Bogotaj. And at the 20-year anniversary of the Wild World of Sports, they invited Vinko to come and attend. He couldn't believe it. I mean, he was a mediocre ski jumper at best. And at the 20-year anniversary, they're inviting him to come. And lo and behold, he shows up at the 20-year anniversary, 
And of all people, Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, walks up to Vinko and asks for his autograph. He is blown away by this whole experience. And so they interviewed Vinko a little bit later, and they asked him about that particular incident. And he said that what had happened was, he said it had been snowing earlier, and that the uh, jump itself had become very icy and very slick. And he said he didn't realize how bad it was until he started down the ramp. And he said when he started down the ramp, he knew that he was going so much faster than was normal for any ski jumper. And so he also realized that if he took off, he was going to hit a flat area on down and it could be fatal and he could be injured beyond what he could ever imagine. And so he chose to abort the jump by going to the side. And so what you're seeing is not an accident, but it was his choice because he knew if he made the jump, he was going to be hurt worse. He would rather risk a broken ankle and a slight concussion to what may have been fatal if he went ahead and made the jump. In other words, he changed his course so that he did not make a fatal ending. Now here's the point I want to make with you. Maybe this Easter season, this resurrection season, the Lord is speaking to your heart that you need to change course for something in your life. And as you change course, it will, it will be uncomfortable. It may hurt for a season, but it will not be a fatal ending. Maybe there's a sin issue that you have dealt with for years, for decades, that the Lord is saying, listen, it may be uncomfortable now for you to get the courage and the discipline to get beyond this sin issue. But if you change course now, it will not be fatal on down the road. Or maybe there's something else the Lord is saying, listen, it's time to change your course now so that it's not fatal on down the road. Let's learn from Vinko and what he did on the ski jump. He changed his course so it was not a fatal destruction. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't, I, I don't know what you're facing. There may be anguish and, and, uh, Agony that's happening in your heart. But the Lord is saying, listen, I am in control. Trust me. It may be painful for the season, but let me tell you, victory is coming.